Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Laura Jost, Vice President of Content for the American Journal of Managed Care, and today we're bringing you part two of our conversation on opportunities for adalimumab biosimilars in dermatology, gastroenterology, and rheumatology with moderator Dr. Ryan Holmeschild, Director of Pharmacy Services at Emory Healthcare and Winship Cancer Institute. Dr. Alice Gottlieb, Clinical Professor and Medical Director in the Department of Dermatology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Bensi Abraham, Professor of Clinical Medicine in the Academic Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Houston Methodist Hospital. Dr. Vibeck Strand, Biopharmaceutical Consultant and Adjunct Clinical Professor in the Division of Immunology and Rheumatology at Stanford University School of Medicine. And Jamie T. Brogan, Nurse Practitioner at Northwestern Medicine. Topics of conversation in today's podcast include implementation of biosimilars in patients with no history of reference biologic use, insights on switching patients from the reference to the biosimilar, auto-substitution, impact of biosimilar utilization on payers and pharmacy benefit managers, and more. I think about it from the patient perspective as well, right? Different biosimilars, obviously they're shared decision-making, but I do think there might be a different conversation when you're initiating someone who's never received the reference biologic compared to someone that maybe has received the reference and then the biosimilar. And so if we could, I'd like to start with the conversation of those that have never received the reference biologic before. And Dr. Strand, I'd love to get your input on this one. So if you're thinking about best practices for initiating adalimumab biosimilars in patients who have not received the reference biologic, how would you go about that as their provider? And what are some of the key considerations that we should share with patients? Well, I think that I, I it is shared decision-making, but I likely expect that there will be forced decisions where there, there isn't much of a discussion other than to explain the biosimilar. Why is it, why is it there? How is it different from Humira or Adalimumab? And I think that's a big important way of avoiding the nocebo effect. But particularly with a patient who's a naive, naive to that particular biologic, I would hope that their concerns are less But again, I think it really has to do with the knowledge about biosimilars. And, you know, we rheumatologists have been hearing about biosimilars forever, it seems. But certainly since the first ones were approved, even though they didn't generally impact our practice as much as they have gastroenterology, for instance, which is interesting. So basically... I still believe that it would be a conversation not too different from what I'm going to have with a patient who might be switching. But it's about really just explaining what a biosimilar is and reassuring patients that they are, for all intensive purposes, highly, highly similar with comparable safety, et cetera. You know, Dr. Strand gave us a great overview, and I agree. Educating the patient's gonna be an important piece, making sure they understand what they're getting. And maybe if they've never received the reference product before, it's almost like they don't know what they're missing type scenario. But we know that's not always the case. 
especially for patients maybe in gastroenterology who don't want to flare. They've been stable on their disease, and you're switching them from a reference to a biosimilar. And I feel like that conversation is going to be a little bit different. And so, Dr. Abraham, because I used the gastroenterology example, I'd love to get your input on this. But what's been your experience with switching existing patients from a reference uh, maybe adalimumab to the biosimilar or reference biosimilar to the reference pro- or biosimilar product. How are patients responding to this type of conversation? And have you experienced payers non-medically saying, we need you to switch from the reference to the biosimilars? And how do you handle that conversation? Yeah, here I don't have a ton of experience. Um, I, I can say just a one handful of, you know, of patients who we had to use biosimilars for. Um, and pretty much they, well, Several of them have been new starts for a, for the biosimilar, so they've never experienced a reference product before. But they're doing well because they're got on. They actually have received therapy that they need for treating their inflammatory bowel disease, and now going into the maintenance phase, they're able to you know continue to get better you know to clinical um, response remission. And we have yet to see how they do endoscopically, but that's kind of our next you know set of goals for long-term you know treatment targets for our, our patients. Now. Um, as far as the, the the switches that have been made, there's one patient who had a loss of insurance, and then with this gap, he was off of his originator bio, uh, bi- biologic adalimumab, and then of course he went and started to flare, and so now mm-hmm. in order to get back on track, we started him on a biosimilar because it was going to be less expensive for him as out-of-pocket cost. So we've just restarted this medication, but for him, he's not just switching over because there was a gap of his treatment. I have to restart him with the um, initial induction doses. You know, For us, it's 160 and then 80 two weeks later, and then 40 thereafter every two weeks. So, of course, with whichever biosimilar, we have to look at the concentration. What is available is 80 versus only 40. But for the most part, you know, this the, this patient I can think of is an old older gentleman who is not really worried about needles. Um, so even if I had to get him on one that was going to be less expensive for him, but only had the 40 milligram dosing, then he's uh, completely okay with that versus someone who is younger, needle phobic, and you know, like struggling to make sure they stay on the medication. That played a big, would have played a bigger role for this patient. There's even the consideration of auto substitution that occurs, right? So it's not just about prior authorization, but you know, what is auto substitution going to look like from a pharmacy perspective? So there's certain states that have interchangeability rules where the the product can get substituted and changed at the pharmacy level without having to notify the provider. And so the interchangeability status, you know, that double-edged sword where it gives us the confidence, we feel comfortable with our patients transitioning, but that is going to be what the pharmacy can transition our patients to without having to ask our permission or in some states even notify the providers. Um, and so we might be hearing from our patients about that. So what, what challenges, you know, as we talk about this topic, because I think it's extremely relevant, and I think it's something that's going to be coming. Uh, what, what are some of the challenges, maybe state laws for biosimilars uh, with the interchangeability designation? Do you think would happen as it relates to auto substitution as your provider? And if you could, do you have any clinical concerns around auto substitution? If you've maybe written a prescription, it goes to the pharmacy and this occurs. Um, what are your thoughts around that? So I think if you do have a strong preference, you can always obviously still select dispenses written, and then that overrides the ability to inter- to, to auto-substitute. But I think with all of this, we keep circling around this confidence, but also the education component. And I think educating our pr- patients that are on current reference product, Adalumabab, about 
the recent approval of biologics um, that there are of biosimilars and that they are available and that at some point in the coming years it is likely that you will be advised to switch um, to a biosimilar product. But talking about it now with our patients, preparing them for this decision so that if something arrives in the mail and it's a different colored package, it's a different type of administration. It has citrate, it's a different dosing. They have to change how they're giving it to themselves. It feels different. But also for someone who helps navigate access a lot, um, making sure that you know that your patient is going to start on that product so you can get them enrolled in the cost savings programs and the support programs and the patient assistance programs that are also going to be all those critical tools in decreasing barriers to your patient maintaining care. You, you really bring up some great points. I mean, auto substitutions isn't going to be ideal because we want to have shared decision making. And I said that from a pharmacy perspective, even though the question is around auto substitution. But even if a patient is on a branded product in a hub service, a patient assistance program or another biosimilar that's getting switched, how do we know they're going to get re-enrolled appropriately? How do we know that their financial toxicity is going to be taken care of? Some of these programs might have transportation um, vulnerability programs that help get patients to clinic. And it's more than just switching the product. It's really making sure we're holistically we're taking care of the patient, the pharmacies understand the implications of that substitution, and that the provider can prepare that patient appropriately so they can still stay motivated and on therapy and adherent. And I think that's not, that's probably one of the conversations that's not had enough outside of the cost of biosimilars is kind of those varying programs in addition to the concentrations and the different products that are going to be existing. You bring up a very important point, actually, because often when we're prescribing a biologic, any biologic, there's a lot of copay assistance and programs involved with that. And usually we have to get them enrolled first before we get it approved. So if we get them approved for one biosimilar and a different or, or any agent and a different agent is being prescribed, then the patient may end up getting a bill or out-of-pocket cost that they weren't even expecting. So that's one of those unexpected challenges that can happen with an interchangeability designation where a patient or a provider is unaware that that switch um, is, make, is, is being made, essentially. I think that chaos level, though, of the unexpected is also going to feed into that nocebo effect. We know that payers are focused on selecting a handful of biosimilars in the formularies. And Dr. Gottlieb, you've spoken about this before, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is what's been your coverage experience with large payers or PBMs in your practice areas with adalimumab biosimilars or biosimilars in general? And, and what do you predict the impact of those payers and pharmacy benefit managers will be? I think the impact of for any of the medications, not just biosimilars, of the PBMs and the payers is probably almost 100%. I mean, that really is what we are, as practitioners, going to ha have very limited options I mean, in, 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 in independent uh, prescriptions. If you're asking about the experience in my Mount Sinai Union Square uh, location, we have not had any, I have yet to have um, any real experience with the biosimilar adalimumab yet. I asked my pharmacist, I mean, they're formulating a policy, no pun intended, but they are, but they also said that the availability of these biosimilars is pretty sketchy uh, compared, obviously, to the reference drug. But in terms of what I do have experience with, of course, many disease indications is with infliximab and rituximab. And there it's essentially 100% um, uh, biosimilar. 
I couldn't even tell you who manufactures those biosimilars. I mean, that basically, the the it's a, because it's a hospital-administered drug, basically, uh, they decide. And, and so far, I've been happy with the outcomes. But there, it's 100% penetration, I would say. I don't know anybody who's getting the branded versions of those in my hospital. So it sounds like, you know, it's important, but it sounds like PBMs and payers are having a huge influence. And how can they... Huge doesn't begin to say it. Huge if doesn't... If the payers and the PBMs are listening to this, please, whatever deals that you're making, please make sure the patient is paying less, especially our Medicare patients. Please really do lower the cost and increase the access because it's not me who has the control. It's you guys that have the control, and it's, it's your responsibility to do the right thing. I'm curious, you know, payer influence on prescribing and experience. Dr. Abraham, how does payer preference influence your prescribing choices for biosimilars? So biggest thing here would be what is covered for the patient. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, if um, medication is not covered, then it's going to influence. I'm not going to. I'm not going to provide. Actually, prescribe that medication. But let's say there are multiple options that then the um, the payer is going to provide us for the biosimilars. I kind of wrote a list of things that I'm going to be looking for. We talked about a lot of these already. Obviously, citrate free. So if there's an option for citrate free versus a citrate full, I will choose to prescribe the citrate free um, um, biosimilar. And we talked about dosing. If there's an 80 milligram dosing versus only a 40 milligram dosing, I will um, choose to go for the 80 milligram. This is especially important for new starts of the biosimilar or patients I've known have been more challenging and they've had higher dosing requirements in, in, in the past, even if they are making that switch. Um, the other hand, um, indication-specific data, we talked uh, specifically about that as well. Um, if they have that indication uh, study, I'm going to choose that one over another biosimilar that doesn't. The other two things involve, uh, from a patient's perspective, what is the uh, copay assistance for that patient. If it's very similar or it's going to be low cost to the patient, that's going to be important because, again, we're trying to uh, reduce the the cost, especially to the patient, you know, getting prescribed that medication. And the other aspect from the, the uh, clinical perspective or our staff perspective is, do they have programs that will um, ease access to getting the medication approved? If it's going to take, you know, two months to get one biosimilar approved versus a day, I'm going to choose that option because I don't want to delay therapy or delay care for that patient. So those are all the things that I would consider when choosing a biosimilar if we had options. Well, thanks to you all for this rich and informative discussion. But before we conclude, I'd really like to get final thoughts from each of you. And so maybe, Dr. Abraham, what are some final thoughts you'd like to share with our viewing audience based on our robust discussion today? Wow, can I repeat everything in the past uh, couple of hours we've been here? No. Uh, <laughs> um, well, biosimilars are here. If they're not here for you, they're coming. Um, from from our discussion, I think we all agree that we want to be confident from having the knowledge from the provider's perspective to convey that to our patients. Um, and in general, with the biosimilars, we're hoping that it will reduce healthcare costs to society, but we also hope that it conveys that to our patients as well. And to finalize, my last statement would be time will tell. <laughs> I like that time will tell. And I think, you know, We've got really a, a pioneer front in front of us of how we're going to implement this. And there's so many different considerations that we touched on today. So it's going to be exciting, but also important for us to navigate this. Uh, 
But I'm going to also look to Jamie. What are your final thoughts? You've shared a lot around patient access and affordability. What do you want our viewers to leave with today? I think being confident, again, with the, uh, the data behind biosimilars, understanding what your resources are to keep your patients on agents, um, and making sure that you're sharing that knowledge with your patients so that and your staff that are also helping educate your patients. Yeah, it's important for everyone to know because I think we play as a multidisciplinary team and I think that provider-patient relationship is so important, but so many other individuals interact with that patient throughout their care journey. Dr. Gottlieb, you've got a lot of experience in biosimilars. You've been on a lot of studies around biosimilars. What are some of the final thoughts you want our viewing audience to know? I think it will be very important to educate both the doctors and the uh, nurse practitioners and PAs who are prescribing these drugs so that they're the, both patient and uh, doctor feels, and I'm using broad use of doctor, feel comfortable. However, we are dependent on our colleagues in the payer and, and PBM side to please put the patient first. And, and the important thing with these biosimilars is to lower to cost the patient and to increase access to these life-altering drugs. Absolutely. Dr. Strand, we're going to leave the final thoughts with you. Yes, well, I was involved in the early FDA meetings for the initial biosimilar approvals. And so I'm quite convinced that biosimilars are of equivalent efficacy and comparable safety and immunogenicity. And I think that we have seen a development of a lot of biosimilars with approvals in the US now. And we've been educated by the experience in Europe, which is really important. So I have a lot of confidence in the use of biosimilars. I do prefer the idea of an interchangeable biosimilar, but I I'm not sure that that will be so important as we go forward, as we have more and more biosimilars, and it becomes clear that they are, when they're approved, what they say they should be. I do think that we aren't receiving the translation of cost savings that were designed to occur with a biosimilar, with the fact that you can have a uh, more limited development program. And those cost savings really have not been uh, given to our patients and we haven't been able to experience them. Uh, some of it has to do with marketing and patent situations and so on in our healthcare system. But as Dr. Gottlieb said, we need the payers and the PBMs to help us translate these cost savings to our patients, they're the ones who really need this. And it's true, not just of those with the insurance, but it's true of Medicare patients. It's true throughout our system. And unfortunately, we're bankrupting our system with the expense of the therapies. And when we have the opportunity to save so much money with a biosimilar, I wish we could see that translation into our healthcare system and specifically to our patients. That's all we have for today. If you missed it, please tune into the first podcast in this series where we discussed provider and payer considerations for transitioning patients to biosimilars, challenges associated with biosimilars, and approaches to prescribing biosimilars over reference products. For more updates and managed care, visit AJMC.com and sign up for our e-newsletter. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com 
or follow us on Twitter at BGMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. 